Welcome again to the ICEJ webinar series. We're so uh, pleased to have a special guest uh, that is part of our Envision Conference for Pastors and Leaders this week. That has uh, it's become a solidarity mission to Israel, but we are having some good uh, lectures, theological discussions, uh, uh, besides touring the land. And we now want to uh, introduce Dr. Gerald McDermott. He is an Anglican scholar and theologian, and one of the leading uh, voices today, academic voices, very strong on Christian Zionism, Christian support for Israel. He's here speaking at our Envision conference, and he's now going to talk about the kingdom of God and the war in Gaza. Sounds very interesting. Please come, Dr. McDermott. Thank you, David, and thanks to all those of, of you who are listening for showing interest um, at this critical time in history in this wonderful country of Israel. This is a critical moment in the history of redemption, not only because this singular and God-permeated country is threatened in a world historical way, but also because this is a world historical moment in the history of the kingdom of God. Now, as a local Peter taught us last night, uh, Pastor Peter up in Haifa, who is with us, the kingdom of God is central for Jews and Christians, the concept of the kingdom of God. In the Hebrew Bible, as Michael, the great Jewish philosopher whom I was privileged to be friends with and work together with before he died, Michael Wishagrod, the great Jewish philosopher, as he taught and, and, and published an article on this, and you can look it up at First Things, the number one image for God in the Hebrew Bible is God as king. God as king. Same thing, you could say, in Jesus' teachings. Uh, the kingship of God, the kingdom of God, is absolutely paramount. Now, a lot of you are pastors, you're trained, you know that Jesus' favorite teaching method was the parable, a story. And you might know that the number one theme in Jesus' parables was the kingdom of God. He said the kingdom of God is like a sower who sowed good seed in his field. The kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like leaven, a woman hid in three measures of flour. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of God is like a merchant searching for a fine pearl. The kingdom of God is like a net thrown into the sea that gathers every kind of fish. And every scribe, Jewish scribe, you know, scribe, 
um, was a, th a theologian. These were the Jewish theologians, the ones Jesus, the, the ones in the New Testament, the Gospels referred to as scribes, the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, the theologians and the Bible preachers, the Pharisees. Every scribe, Jesus said, is trained for the kingdom, sort of like the master of a house, he says. Now, Jesus, you probably know, was a, uh, a rabbi, you could say, professor. And after his resurrection, he conducted a 40-day postgraduate seminar <laughs> by invitation only for his top students. And do you remember what the theme of the seminar was for 40 days? What was it? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. When Paul finally got to Rome and finally got to talk to the Jewish leaders in Rome, once again toward the end of his life, what does he talk to the Jewish leaders in Rome about? The kingdom of God. What theme is repeated more than 100 times in the New Testament? The kingdom of God. Now, now, wait a minute. Some of my Reformed theologian friends will say, now, wait a minute. Terry, isn't the gospel more important than the kingdom of God? And my reply is, well, Jesus talked about the gospel of the kingdom. It's the gospel of the kingdom. That's what the gospel is. <laughs> um, now, both Protestants and Catholics are tempted to misunderstand the kingdom. Tempted. Some do, some, some yield to the temptation, and some don't. Protestants, the, the Protestant temptation in thinking about the kingdom is to treat it as principally or wholly invisible and internal. It's a matter of the heart. It's just when people make Jesus their king in their hearts. And they, in sermons, many Protestant sermons, you hear them criticize the apostles for being so stupid, thinking in very earthly terms about the kingdom that it would involve throwing the Romans out, not realizing the kingdom is spiritual. It's invisible. It's internal. It's not this external thing that's visible. Well... In the Gospels, the kingdom becomes quite visible. And in Acts, the kingdom becomes quite visible. The apostles told the Jerusalem politicians, we're not going to keep quiet about the kingdom as Jesus has taught us. The Romans realized that the Jesus movement view of the kingdom was actually an external threat because if the God of Israel is king, then Caesar is not. The Romans persecuted, and there are others who persecuted the Jesus movement visibly. That was a very visible persecution. And there were visible crowds in Jerusalem 
who were deeply moved by this Jesus. The early church that swelled up to thousands of visible Jewish believers. I was glad to see that Peter mentioned tens of thousands because that's in Acts 21 is myriades, plural, not myriad, singular. And each myriad is 10,000. It's routinely mistranslated. So there were tens, tens of thousands, a minimum of what? 20,000, right? Two is 20. A minimum of 20,000 Jewish believers just in Jerusalem. That's roughly at least 15 years after the resurrection. These are very visible crowds who got visibly persecuted by politicians who were very upset with too many visible things going on. This Jesus movement is far too visible. It's threatening our politics. It's threatening our political control. So the kingdom of God, yes, is invisible in important ways. It is a matter of the heart, yes, but it inevitably has visible external effects in world history, in the history of redemption. So that's the Protestant temptation, to, to regard the, the kingdom as strictly invisible and strictly a matter of the heart. The Catholic temptation, a Roman Catholic, now I'm a, I, I'm in a small c Catholic, Anglican, uh, Orthodox, not like a lot of my liberal Anglican confreres. The Catholic temptation is that the kingdom has already arrived in the church. Nothing more is to be expected. Thank you. No need to look to the future. It's already come. The kingdom's already come. Everything already happened in Jesus' death and resurrection. This is also a Reformed theological temptation, although I will point out to any of you who are Reformed, and I'm still very much influenced by the Reformed tradition, that it was the Reformed Puritans, starting in the 16th century, who broke from Calvin on his excessively figurative interpretation of the Hebrew Bible and started to say, hey, it's as plain as day that all these prophecies in in the Hebrew Bible are not all about the future church. So many of them are about Jewish Israel. So these were reformed, the Puritans. And then the Pietists over on the continent were Lutherans. And these Lutheran Pietists broke from Luther in his supersessionism. And they said the same thing. We cannot take all these prophecies in the Hebrew Bible to be referring to the church. Uh-uh. No, that's, that's, that's a misreading. It's bad hermeneutics. It's a misreading of the plain sense of the text. And a huge Reformation hermeneutical principle is you follow the plain sense of the text first. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't low, uh, deeper spiritual senses, but you go first with the plain sense of the text. Luther taught that. So the Catholic temptation is to say it's already arrived in the church. All the promises are already fulfilled in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. It's all done. Thank you. The party's over. 
But if the kingdom is already here because of the invisible uh, surrender of the heart to Jesus, the apostles, bless them, before Jesus went to the cross, they had surrendered their hearts. And we can say, well, they didn't really understand. Well, of course, how, how, how many of us totally understand things? How many of the people in our pews totally understand things? The apostles, as best they could, they had already surrendered to Jesus in their hearts. So why did Jesus have to die if the kingdom was already in their hearts? And of course, that, that was a question they themselves asked. Why did Jesus tell his disciples to keep repeating his Lord's Prayer? And he knew they would be repeating it because it would, it would be the, the Holy Spirit would guide the apostles and, and all and people closely associated with the apostles to write the New Testament. And to teach them the Lord's Prayer to say, long after the resurrection, thy kingdom come. May it come in the future. If everything had already happened, if the kingdom had already been completely fulfilled in the church, why are they still praying, thy kingdom come? When the Pharisees asked Jesus, when's the kingdom going to come? Why did Jesus talk immediately about his second coming when the Son of Man will be revealed from one end of the world to another? Clearly the future. Clearly telling the Pharisees that full manifestation of the kingdom has not arrived yet. The kingdom is now and was there in Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. But it's also not fully arrived yet. It's now and, and not yet. It's a big thing in New Testament studies. Now and not yet. It's both. Now what about Israel? Jesus talks about the restoration of Israel. What does that have to do with Jesus' view of the kingdom of God? More and more scholars are realizing that you cannot understand Jesus' view of the kingdom of God without understanding his view of the restoration of Israel. Now, there's a classic text, you all know it, Acts 1-6, on top of um, uh, Mount of Olives. Jesus is, you know, his, his postgraduate seminar is over. He's given his grades. He, you know, he turned in his grades. Um, and he's about to ascend to the Father. And, and remember, these top graduate students who have been listening to him for 40 days about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, they ask him, so, Lord, is this now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, I was trained... And you still see it in so many commentaries on Acts. That Jesus' response basically belittled the apostles for asking this question. 
treated it as a stupid question, as a as a earthly carnal question, not understanding that the kingdom is invisible, it's spiritual only. And Israel has nothing to do with earthly Israel. But no, that's not that that was not what Jesus his reply was. And more and more scholars are coming to see this. And and I and again I highly recommend this book, Luke Luke's Jewish Eschatology by um, uh, Isaac Oliver. Jesus says, the Father has fixed the time for that, and it's not for you to know that time right now. Jesus talks about the future of Jerusalem, aspects of the kingdom of God yet to come. He prophesied, as I said in my last talk, that one day, Jerusalem will no longer be trampled upon by the Gentiles. And in that day, when Jews regain political and military control of all of Jerusalem, that that will be the end of the times. That, that, that will be the, the beginning of the end of the times of Gentiles. And we know that it took place in 1967, for the sake of this audience, I'll say again, 1,937 years after Jesus' prophecy, it was fulfilled. And he also suggested, Jesus also suggested, that that end of the times of the Gentiles, which we're in the process of right now, will precipitate the events of the last days. Because he also said, one day, Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem will welcome him. Matthew 23 and Luke 13. All of which suggests that Jesus predicted a restoration of Israel. That's the plain sense of the text. That will involve the nations, not just individual hearts. Now, that was the mistake of the pietists. All of Christianity is just, just a matter of the heart. It doesn't affect world history. It doesn't affect external events. Folks, that's not... Now, the Pietists were beautiful in many ways, and thankfully, they, were, they started... Um, you know, they picked up the, the Christian Zionist theme. But they tended to be very anti-intellectual, and they tended to be all about the heart, and everything's about the heart, and that's it. And, and that's a mistake. That's a dichotomy that's very un-Jewish. And because it's un-Jewish, it's un-Jesus, and un-early church, and un-truly biblical Christian. Don't, don't, please, don't ever pit the heart against the head. That's un-Jewish. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Well, quoting Moses, quoting God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't suggest to the next generation that you have to cut off your head to be a follower of Jesus. That's a huge mistake of pietistic um, Protestants. And most of these folks are Protestants, not Catholics. Catholics get that. That, that Jesus wants us to love God with our minds and not just our hearts. And there's no essential dichotomy. There's no, there's, you know, the Hebrew view is the mind is, is, is part of the heart anyway. 
So, um, this will involve the nations. It's all through the Hebrew Bible. And Jesus, in his prediction about the end in Luke 21, he talks, he, he talks about the lead up to his second coming is, is distress among the nations. And he also suggests, following prophets like Zechariah, that his second coming will be prefigured by events that center in the nation of Israel when Jerusalem is no longer trampled upon. And we're, that's right now, folks, as you know. So, the Hebrew Bible teaches, and Jesus teaches it too, and unfortunately a lot of our pietistic influence has blinded us to see this in the New Testament, that God deals with nations as nations, not just individuals. And secondly, I don't have time to get into this, but, it, but it's very clear in places like Ezekiel and in the New Testament that God judges the nations by, by how they treat the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. And third, that Israel's restoration is part of the first fruits of the healing of the nations. Now, Jesus elliptically alludes to the healing of the nations. The healing of the nations is specifically mentioned at the, the, the end of the book of Revelation as part of the future. So what about the Gaza War? We should not be shocked as um, Jürgen and David have been telling us and Rabbi Eugene. We should not be shocked by the savagery and the evil of Hamas. What we saw and what we heard about are uh, full-color illustration, a full-color video of the hatred Satan has for God's people, the Jews. This is what we've seen. That's what happened on October 7th. The whole world saw how Satan hates the chosen people. So, uh, the biblical pattern is that the history of redemption is not just a redemption of individuals, but of nations. And that toward the end of days, the nations will turn against Israel and her people. Now, would Jesus support the Gaza War? Uh, a lot of Christians who are from the pacifist tradition, the Anabaptist traditions, would say no, because Jesus was a pacifist, and he's against all blood and bloodshed and killing. Well, I disagree. The majority of the Christian moral tradition disagrees and has always rejected so-called Christian pacifism. Now, I respect my Anabaptist brothers and sisters. I respect them. And many of them are very brave and deeply uh, faithful Christians, but I, 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 I disagree with them. Uh, I would say, look, Jesus said every stroke of the pen in the Hebrew Bible was inspired by God. Therefore, when he tells us well, he does. He tells us to love our enemies, but hate the evil they represent. Jesus was a Jew. 
And the Hebrew Bible, as you know, teaches that the fear of the Lord is the hatred of what? Evil. Paul quotes that in Romans 12, verse 9. Hate what is evil. Abhor is the ESV translation. It means hate what is evil. Jesus hated evil. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 6, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, he praises the church of Ephesus for hating, that's the word used, the works of the Nicolaitans, which, Jesus says, I also hate. And what are the works of the Nicolaitans? Well, idolatry and sexual immorality. Jesus was not a pacifist. Uh, let me restate that. Restate that. Jesus is not a pacifist. Jesus believed as all Jews believe, who believe the Hebrew Bible is the word of God, there's a time for war. Now that's Ecclesiastes 3. He suggests this in, his, in, the, in, 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 in the very parable of the wicked tenants that is the principal proof text for supersessionists. He talks about a vineyard owner who punished the wicked tenants who killed his servants and son by, quote, putting those wretches to a miserable death. Those are Jesus' words. He suggested this was a just punishment. In Revelation 19, Jesus has his robe dripped in blood, dripping with blood. And out of his mouth comes a sword with which he kills the wicked. Mild, meek Jesus. In Jude 5, this is often mistranslated, but I think the best translation is, Jesus destroyed those who did not believe. And he's talking about uh, basically the unbelievers in the wilderness during the 40 years. Jesus destroyed, killed, those who did not believe. The point, while Jesus calls us to love our enemies, his love is holy. Very different from the world's love, which is unholy, typically. Jesus' love is holy. And this, his love, his call for us to love our enemies does not contradict the tragic need for nations, particularly uh, uh, the nation of God's chosen people, the Jews, to defend themselves against those who seek their elimination. We Christians need to spiritually discern that, I, that as, as Rabbi Eugene said, that Iran and Hamas are coming after Christians next. They're working on the Saturday people today. Tomorrow they're, they're coming after the Sunday people. Because they know our faith is a Jewish faith. So Israel today, and down in Gaza, and up on the northern border, is fighting for biblical Christians. And we need to do what we can to support them. Spiritually, politically, if our country, if we can influence our country, and if necessary, even milita uh, militarily.
to give military support. In conclusion, the kingdom of God works invisibly, but also visibly. It has, if it is truly working invisibly, it will always manifest itself visibly. That's the way the Holy Spirit works. The kingdom of God started in Eden, but is, is not full yet. Its final outworking is yet to come. Jesus prophesied that the kingdom of Israel would be reestablished and restored at the end of days. Recent history suggests that we are seeing the first fruits of the final renewal, the apocatastasis, that starts with Israel and eventually brings healing to the nations. Thank you.